Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Instant. Now, technically we are on episode three, but episode one was a two-parter, so just by way of consequence, we are on episode two. And I'm excited about this episode because I'm going to be introducing a new series uh, that I'm conducting on the nature of the self. So for those of you that follow me on Facebook as well as Instagram, you'll probably notice I've been talking about this new series I'm going to be doing uh, called Seinfrage, which is a German phrase I'll talk about here in a moment. But I'm excited to talk about this um, because it's a subject which is primarily concerned about the conversation that's taking place between philosophers and psychologists. And now, I've always had an interest in that kind of conversation, but really over the last, I'd say, six months to a year or so now, I've dived into this subject a little bit more deeply, and I'm excited to flesh out the details of that investigation um, a little more further by providing a kind of historical, kind of conceptual history as to the idea of the self. So really in this lecture, if I can call it that, I'm going to phrase um, all of this as well as the entirety of this series just in the form of a question. And that's kind of where the name of this series comes from. But to remember, of course, um, as good philosophers, just like good heroes that we read in epic stories, we have to encounter some problem or obstacle in order to give rise to our need for an adventure. The secret of life, however, as Blaise Pascal observed some 500 years ago, it's that we have already embarked on this adventure just by virtue of our being, and that all of us really are bound for port. Now, the sort of problems or questions that we face in life, just as the problem or question of self that arises, there must be some integral treatment of the problem's history. Now, because of course, insofar as troubles and sufferings don't emerge spontaneously out of an arbitrary vacuum of experience. There's a, a sense in which we are engaging a real threat of antithesis, being and non-being, good and evil, life and destruction. Now, this threat is not one which has just emerged recently in the modern period over the last 200, 150, or 50 years, or the last two weeks, but one which is extended over the whole of human history, ancient, medieval, and modern. As Martin Heidegger once observed, a German philosopher that we'll cover in a future episode in some detail, Seinfrage, or literally in English, being question, the question of being, is necessarily bound up with the Geschichte des Sein, or the history of being. Hence, this is where the name of these episodes, these lectures, find their inspiration. Seinfrage, literally translated, is being question. So all that to say is that the nature of the self, or in asking the question, what is the self, who am I, it's integral with other prior inquiries about metaphysics, which is a science of being, as well as the history of being itself. So in order to answer the question, who am I, we have to not only understand the totality of our individual lives, our past included, but also provide the necessary contrast of our own individual development from the rest of that of the collective participation of human history, of other self-consciousnesses throughout the rest of human history. So this series is going to include a lot of exciting history, uh, at least what I think is exciting anyway, psychology, philosophy, theology, as well as examining certain ideas in closer detail, such as personality types, or what is known as psychological typology. 
looking deeper at the idea of archetypes, the unconscious, and some thinkers that we're going to examine um, range from a lot of different philosophers that I've discussed already on this page, such as Aristotle, Plato, Thomas Aquinas, Pascal, Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud, Charles Taylor, Martha Nussbaum, and several others. Now this specific episode, uh, this lecture is really only going, to be, only going to be a sort of preliminary conceptual introduction. In other words, the present listener is only getting a sense of what temperature the water is going to be like after sticking their intellectual toes in the pool of understanding. So it is clear before this episode reaches its, its conclusion that some will quiver in cold hesitation while certainly there are others who have no concern for gauging temperatures and have temperaments that show a philosophy of the cannonball at work, right? But your present author is not concerned, and staying with the analogy, with being a siren or a seducer of religious thought. So for those of you that remember your classical mythology, Odysseus covered his ears with wax in order to avoid the seductive song of the sirens, which lured sailors to their deaths. John Locke, the empiricist philosopher, once said that we must not loose our thoughts into the vast ocean of being. So then an intellectual siren is one who plays the sweet, alluring song of sophistication, of intellectualism, of elitism and superiority. To those who have loosened their thoughts, as well as their passions, to the sway of intellectualism, they will have found themselves, I think, swept away by the waves of curiosity and directly into the depths of despair. So then the kind of inquiry for which we are concerned is likewise associated with these depths. However, our search for the nature of the self, asking, of course, more deeply the question, who am I? It's to precisely deal with this despair as the starting point of our quest towards the infinitude of the human person rather than working the other way around, which starts with the infinitude of human knowledge, of human nature, and thereby ends in despair. So I think in order to steer clear of these sort of problems, it's necessary that we proceed first with some initial clarifications, as I've already mentioned. And the first thing I figure that's worth mentioning is the kind of temperament or attitude that one must have in order to approach this discussion about the history of ideas. And I thought about this quite a bit, and before I read my notes, uh, what I'm going to talk about here, you know, there's a certain sense in which in discussing psychology, discussing the history of ideas and the nature of the self, and really asking that question, who am I? And to provide this kind of philosophical clarification, really this kind of depth and complexity, um, this intellectual difficulty, is in itself kind of a psychological answer to the question, who am I? Because, I mean, I don't know, it's just funny to think about when, of course, you ask such a question. Well, who am I? What's my place in the world? And that in order to do so, to proceed in this kind of way that I'm going to here in a moment, you, you can see that there really is a certain kind of thinking type that's involved with this sort of depth, if you will. Um, because this spans uh, a lot of areas of inquiry that isn't just limited to, for example, behavioral science or even philosophy. But we're getting into linguistics. Um, the nature of beauty and stuff like that. So um, I'll get into all that here in a moment. But one thing that I think is really important by way of, of an attitude in order to approach these ideas seriously 
Um, one way of putting it actually comes from a philosopher uh, named Arthur Lovejoy, who once was a professor of philosophy at John Hopkins University, and he gave a series of lectures in the early 1930s at Harvard University, which later came to be published as a wonderful little book called The Great Chain of Being. Uh, it's a pretty difficult read, but for those of you that are more philosophically inclined, pick it up. It's brilliant. I have my disagreements. That doesn't matter, but read it. It's great. Now, in that book, he cites a specific phrase that I thought was a wonderful little description of the kind of temperament that I think is necessary within the individual pursuing an interest in this kind of stuff. And the phrase is metaphysical pathos. As Lovejoy writes, metaphysical pathos is exemplified in any description of the nature of things, any characterization of the world to which one belongs, in terms which, like the words of a poem, awaken through their associations and through a sort of sympathy which they engender, a congenial mood or tone of feeling on the part of the philosopher and his readers. So, in other words, Lovejoy makes what I think is the wonderful observation that there is a certain kind of sympathetic or even aesthetic or beautiful experience within one's approaching a theoretical or highly intellectual subject. And now that's just one way of describing a kind of metaphysical pathos, but this aesthetic or beautiful experience or this tone of feeling could even be felt among the laity or the non-academics who read a difficult, voluminous work and nonetheless accrue some kind of emotional reverberation independent of any definite image that might emerge from their reading of the text. So to put it another way, there's a certain Latin phrase that Lovejoy cites, which I think best captures the philosopher's attitude to the world, and that's omne ignotum pro magnifico, or everything, this is roughly translated, everything not known is in place of a magnificent thing. And I think it was Sherlock Holmes who even used that phrase in one of Arthur Conan Doyle's novels. Uh, but that aside, the idea is that this metaphysical pathos this quality within the present listener, if it is there, exhibits something of the similar kind of wonder which Plato said drove the need to pursue knowledge in the first place. Like the detective, the philosopher is driven by a sort of inward passion or desire to know. The detective, of course, for the sake of solving a crime or putting the world back to rights, the philosopher does so for the sake of knowing itself, and of course, for those of you that remember your philosophy, you'll remember that it was for the sake of living the good life. That is to say, contemplation was a part of what it meant to flourish or be happy. This is why the first sentence of Aristotle's books on metaphysics begins with the succinct observation about man's being in the world. All men naturally have an impulse to get knowledge. However, from here, I think it is also likewise important now to provide a word of caution, just to mention the sort of limitations that we human beings rub up against in our pursuit of knowledge uh, of this world. Now, the British poet uh, Alexander Pope, I think, said it best, and he gave some really great lines um, warning against this idea of intellectual promiscuity, which is my phrase, not his. But just to read out loud, he says, he who through vast immensity can pierce See worlds on worlds compose one universe. Observe how system into system runs. What other planets circle other suns. What varied, 
being people's every star, may tell why heaven has made us as we are. But of this frame, the bearing and the ties, the strong connections, nice dependencies, gradations just, has thy pervading soul looked through, or can a part contain the whole? So the idea behind Alexander Pope, and even John Locke's warning, as I mentioned earlier, against the vanity of reason, or of the sort of overt confidence in rationalism, is this kind of warning that man must become habitually mindful of the limitations of his mental powers. And John Locke, just to go back to him, has a wonderful sort of phrase where he says that men may, men may find matter sufficient to busy their heads and employ their minds with variety, delight, and satisfaction, if they will not boldly quarrel with their own constitution and throw away the blessings their hands are filled with, because they are not big enough to grasp everything. Know then thyself, says Alexander Pope, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. So the, the fundamental idea is to regard knowledge as something that is in search of a truth that is true for you. Now this isn't to resort to a kind of subjectivism, whereby all things pass through the authority of your own mind. But rather that you and being itself are in dialogue with one another. Being can only know or be known likewise by being. You know, as one poet I think rightly put it, we must transluce our gaze towards being. In life, we are not granted a transparent knowledge of God, to put it another way. You know, as, as Paul says succinctly in his letter to the uh, church at Corinth, now we only see through a looking glass darkly. So that is to say that at present in this life, our gaze towards God is not transparent. He does not shine through us as does a beam of light through a clear panel of glass. However, thankfully, our gaze towards God is not opaque either, where no light is able to shine through. A translucent gaze, on the other hand, is one where the light is able to shine through, but is yet scattered upon reflection, much like what we see from frosted or poroglass, or even a kaleidoscope, as one way to think about this. So then this translucent gaze is one indicative form of seeing through the lens of faith. One significantly whereby the light of grace is found resting upon all of creation, which God initially made as good. However, the very way in which that is able to be seen is through God's grace alone. Now, of course, certainly God has made manifest his power in creation, as you know, Paul writes in Romans 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. However, the knowledge that is afforded to us by this experience of creation is one which is only partial. It is not through an experience of the ocean shores or of the swaying trees that one is able to say, Jesus is Lord. Rather, otherwise, it is by the virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit that one is able to say, Jesus is Lord. Paul says this succinctly again to his letter at Corinth. So then, to say succinctly in this series, we are going to be looking back and forth between the eyes of faith and the light afforded to us by reason as to how the individual human self is able to say, I am, and what this means spiritually.
Now, we could, um, I think, best see this by asking questions like, is man merely a continuation in the biological process who only differs from animals, plants, and machines only in degree and not fundamentally in kind? Does man have an immortal soul? Is man guided by reason, emotions, and passions, or somehow all the above? Does man have a spirit? How are mind, soul, and spirit different from one another? All these questions and more under the guise of the fundamental philosophical inquiry, what is man? What does he know, and how does he know it? And so, friends, from here, I'm excited to proceed on this journey with you. But first, we have to outline some possibilities. And one book that I think does this very nicely, um, and I've talked about this quite a bit in other episodes, and it's kind of exhausting to reiterate this again, because, again, there's a lot of metaphysical details to cover, but I think this is necessary. I want to talk about a specific American philosopher, who I think best surveys the kind of views on the human person that we're going to uh, encounter. So for those of you who are older that are listening and are otherwise perhaps more inclined to philosophy, you'll probably know this philosopher very well, Mortimer Adler, uh, who lived to an amazing 98 or 99 years old, uh, virtually lived through the entirety of the, tw uh, the 20th century. Born in 1901, died in 2000. I believe was the year, but he was an amazing academic, mostly well known for being a chairman of the Encyclopedia of Britannica, Board of Editors. Uh, he also formed his own Institute for Philosophical Research. He wrote a plethora of books ranging from political, historical, and classical philosophy. He wrote books on how to read. He wrote books on education and how to reform it. He wrote a book on angels, as well as many other books on what he is known for, called, for calling the great ideas. Some of you might know him for the Great Ideas series. Now, the specific book I'm going to be looking at is one he wrote quite some time ago in 1966, and it's entitled The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. It's a wonderful book. Read it. Um, Mortimer Adler, um, of course, this book especially, um, it, he's particularly interesting to me because, you know, he wrote this book at a point where he wasn't a professing Christian. That's why I like appealing to this book, because... You know, for example, by the 1970s, um, he wrote another really great book on natural theology called How to Think About God. And in that book, he provides a presentation of the cosmological and ontological argument in order to establish a pagan view or approach to God, if you will. Um, one where God's existence is acknowledged, but there's no real religious significance or divine personhood um, attributed to that reality which has been established. Uh, now, Adler would actually convert to Roman Catholicism in his mid to late 90s, uh, but he was admittedly sympathetic to Catholic, especially Thomistic uh, thought um, for quite some time. And I remember one interview where he mentioned that he was a closet Thomist uh, for quite some time throughout the 60s, 70s, up into his later life, of course, upon his conversion in the 90s. Um, so this specific book that I'm going to be referring to was written during a period in which he was sympathetic to Thomas Aquinas. Um, but more particularly influenced by the works of Aristotle and especially of the works of Immanuel Kant. Now, in the text that we're going to be looking at, he does make several appeals throughout the work to the philosophy of Kant as well as Aquinas, um, but we're not going to address those two individuals here now, but I'll get, into, I'll get into them later. So I'm going to kind of be taking a holistic approach to Adler 
and these sort of philosophical worldviews that he's borrowing from because we can't really separate um, the man and the philosopher in that way. Now, um, I don't want to get into the details of this book. I just want to use this book as a kind of outline for helping us think through the question. Because, you know, you, we really could think, dang, Stephen, how is it exactly that you're going to survey historically and philosophically all of these various ideas about the nature of the human person? Wouldn't that take absolutely forever? Well, to a certain extent, yes. Uh, it would take a very long time to survey such a question. And, man, I've, I've read too much in order to really embark on this series. But as we move forward, I, I don't want us to all loose our thoughts to the vast ocean of being, right? But have a similar kind of port by which we could all embark from a mutual starting point. So engaging this in this sort of inquiry is partaking in metaphysics or a science of being that helps us start out in a fundamental way how we can phrase this problem. Um, and one of the first things worth mentioning um, in order to do that is that this specifically this concept of the self is one that I would sharply distinguish from an inquiry about the nature of man. The concept of an individuated self is a relatively new or particularly modern development amidst the general history of ideas. Now, there are some histories which we could look to regarding the advent of the conscious philosophy of Rene Descartes, which shows the sort of first snowball effects of philosophizing about a thinking subject an ego, an I, as distinct from a world of non-thinking objects. And so, kind of inherent within Descartes' philosophy is this distinction between thinking and non-thinking things. And so, um, this kind of preoccupation with self-consciousness or the ego um, is something that sort of develops throughout, you know, encounters of continental philosophy with that of British empiricism, uh, rationalism, the Enlightenment, and so on and so forth. And so the self is kind of a concept that develops over time. But philosophically speaking, it's worth admitting from your present author that this inquiry as to the meaning of the self is actually pretty strange. Because of my mention of pre-modern thinkers like Aristotle, Plato, and Aquinas, who predate Descartes' thinking about an individuated consciousness, as well as, of course, other contemporary understandings of the self. Uh, and, you know, you know so for, just for example, some philosophers will mention how Plato's musings upon the soul was an early classical form of the discourse on the self. Other philosophers have even said that Aristotle was the first to make a systematic inquiry into the nature of the ego. So then, all that to say, just as I proceed, I want to make it clear that this episode is going to cover some specifically ontological questions as to the being of man, rather than any particular conception of the self the psyche, or the ego, from any one philosopher, theologian, or psychologist. So what this means in consequence, I think, is that what must be fundamentally laid down before we can address any meaningful content about the self is some kind of science of being, um, not, again, a physics, but a metaphysic, which helps us shift our way, or helps us sift our way through certain distinctions we encounter in existence or in experience. So, now to be started, let's just ask this in the form of a question. How does man, the being of man, differ, if at all, from everything else on earth? Now, to that question, to sort of skip ahead a little bit, there are only really three possible answers. 
The first is that man differs in degree only from the rest of created being. The second is that man differs superficially in kind from the rest of created being, but only superficially so. The third and final answer is that man differs fundamentally in kind from the rest of created being. Now, in the book, I will say, in being honest, that Mortimer Adler says there are actually four views, but that the fourth view really collapses into the second, and so there are really only three views. So you're welcome. I just saved you some time in reading the book, just to be honest with you. Now, in asking this question as to how we differ from the rest of created being, what criteria could we possibly draw out in order to answer that question? What kinds of other questions, evidence, arguments, and other judgments uh, are relevant in this inquiry about our essential differences from everything else, from animals, machines, etc. Well, for one thing, the evidence would have to in some way be comparative, right? It would have to involve public as well as observable differences between human and animal behavior or of human and machine behavior. And we can distinguish this kind of evidence, comparable evidence we could call it, from that of what Mortimer Adler calls reflexive evidence, or basically non-comparative evidence. And this is the kind of evidence that treats man's study of himself as subject, rather than as object. So, a to think about this better, a comparative study of man's being would look to the external, objective, or overt behavior of human individuals as distinguished from animal or machine behavior, while a reflexive study of man's being would be something akin to what the existentialists, the phenomenologists, and to some degree the Kantians are talking about, regarding what can be universally understood about man's being through self-consciousness, or a close inspection of the interior life. In our study of the human person, we are precisely going to have an interest in the first kind of evidence, that of the comparative or externalized evidence. So. Mortimer Adler in his book is, again, primarily concerned with the, uh, with the establishment of arguments, justifications, and evidences that are of the comparative sort. But of course, I'm not trying to make any specific arguments throughout this series, so we're just going to do some historical and conceptual coverings. And so our interest, for the most part, insofar as we're trying to answer that question, is going to be of the comparative evidential type. But insofar as our evidence needs to be extensive, we are also interested in the reflexive or non-comparative study of man's being. And so we are interested in what the existentialists and phenomenologists have to say. Otherwise, how could I make episodes on Pascal or on Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, phenomenologists like Husserl, Heidegger, and others? So I just want to keep that in mind that insofar as we're just trying to come up with an answer to this question, we're looking everywhere. But the comparative evidence is going to be more particularly compelling. Um, so all that to say is that I, I suppose it should be likewise understood that whatever we know about ourselves through self-reflexive study or through self-consciousness must itself be understood in a matter um, in a manner that is com that is comparable with what we know about ourselves through objective and comparable evidence. The two kinds of evidences, uh, comparative and reflexive, go hand in hand with one another. But there certainly is a kind of primacy in one form of evidence over the other, just provided the kind of inquiry that we're having about the nature of man. So then, moving on to what the evidence suggests. I, I would suppose regarding this inquiry, we might immediately think that an objective comparative study of man's being might necessarily lead us exclusively right to the 
scientific domain. But this is not quite the case. Since our interest in comparative evidence comes from both science and philosophy. So then, let's just see how this applies specifically. Specifically, I can never say that word, dang. Um, when we look at these three possible answers to the question, how does man differ from the rest of created being? Well, to support the answer, for example, that man differs only in degree from the rest of created beings, the evidence, both philosophic and scientific, must show that every type of human performance is found in every other living thing, as well as in machines, and that these performances are present in either a higher or lesser degree within the being of man. Now, since the evidence, just to clarify this, never consists in the bare data of observation, but instead the data interpreted, the interpretation given must be checked against conflicting evidence from common experience and the interpretation put upon it by common sense opinion. Not only this, but the methods of investigation employed in obtaining the data, the, uh, the assumptions underlying such methods, and the soundness even of the theoretical constructs used by the, the investigative scientists, these must themselves be subject to critical examination. Now, this critical examination, this conceptual work, really, is the work precisely of the philosopher. So this is why I say that the scientist and the philosopher go hand in hand with one another when we're investigating the question of the being of man. Now, the second answer to the question, how does man differ? To support the answer that man differs superficially in kind, from the rest of created beings, the evidence must show that man's objectively observable behavior includes certain performances not found at all in other living things or in machines. This must be combined with evidence that clearly supports the explanation of these distinctively human performances by reference to a critical threshold and an underlying continuum of degrees of either psychological or neurological complexity. Now, <laughs> whenever I say that phrase, it's always kind of difficult to understand. But basically with this second answer, that man differs superficially in kind from other things, this is sort of where you find your Marxists who will say um, kind of off the cuff that man does differ from other created being from machines from other sort of mechanistic systems but it's only superficially so um, this is where also you'll find your um, a lot of your behavioral psychologist um, a lot of paleoanthropology will make these kind of distinctions and again a lot of scientists and philosophers differentiate between how they make this sort of claim but you'll notice that Adler I'm getting this phrase specifically from Mortimer Adler where he says that the evidence that clearly supports the explanation of these, of these distinctively human performances by reference to a critical threshold in an underlying continuum of degrees of either psychological or neurological complexity. Now that's a, that's a mouthful. And of course there's a lot of conceptual details to cover but I'm just going to skip over them for now and kind of address them later at another point but I'll definitely provide some examples as to what that statement means. But just covering now the third category. Um, to support the answer that man differs radically in kind from other created things. The evidence must show that man performs certain acts not performed at all by other living things or by machines. 
And this is combined with certain arguments that justify the positing of some power or factor or some kind of feature in man's constitution that is not present in other things, whether animate or inanimate. Uh, as Mortimer Adler succinctly says, to advance such arguments is clearly the work of a philosopher. So, just real quick, some epistemological as well as metaphysical points here. Um, specifically notice that we are not exclusively limited to a consideration of the bare uh, data of empirical observation, specifically to that of science. But also our inquiry in, uh, here includes theoretical and even interpretive elements about that data, which are also involved in answering the question about the being of man. So we are, in other words, deeply involved in philosophy as well as science, not merely one over the other. Now, let me just further differentiate that kind of complexity with those three answers within two historical periods um, for this conversation. Now, according to Adler, we can differentiate between two sort of epochs within the first period, which kind of refers to the beginning of Western thought until about the middle or end of the 19th century. Now, during this first period, the question of man's differences were primarily philosophical and were addressed as such by philosophers and theologians that we know so well throughout history, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Plotinus, Boethius, and so forth. But now the second period kind of deepens the complexity by referring to the middle or end of the 19th century to the present day, by which we now see the advent of or at least the significant development of the natural sciences to understand man's ontological differences. So throughout the 20th century, we have seen outstanding insights from the biological as well as behavioral sciences. Um, but it should be remembered that this transition into the 20th century doesn't necessarily entail that the question thence became an entirely scientific one. Uh, some scientists certainly think it did and still do, but it's only to point out here that the scientific insights and the technological developments which the first period lacked was now supplanted by the assistance of critically relevant empirical evidence. But mind you, the second period itself could be divided into three categories. The first of which refers to the initial entrance of the theory of biological evolution as well as paleoanthropology, something of a rather exciting development of the 19th century. But the second category refers to the development of the behavioral sciences primarily aided by the understandings offered by observations and comparative studies of animal and human behavior, coupled with that of certain clinical experiments from neurology for the first time. Now, the third category, um, and again, this is more recent, refers to the development of computer technology and its significance for imitating or simulating human performances, coupled again with mathematical and neurological theories about these performances. So then, from those differentiations within that second period, this again only covers some really brief 150 year period, you can see how there are a lot of historical and conceptual details to cover when we examine the sort of views espoused by philosophers just in the first historical period alone, which there's a lot, especially how these details deepen when we consider the second historical period and the various epics within that, which again address the question of the being of man. Now, to bring all that to a point of decision, um, Mortimer Adler argues that we should hold the view that man differs fundamentally in kind from the rest of created being, primarily for the reason that man alone is capable of propositional or syntactical speech. In other words, man differs from other created beings fundamentally in kind, and not just superficially in kind, nor merely in degree, because he alone is capable of naming things and of forming sentences. 
Now, let's consider an objection before we continue. You might say, wait a moment, that claim seems evidently false. Assuredly, there are other created beings, machines, animals, uh, who can form sentences that they too can participate in the use of symbols. There are certain intelligent species of animals who can use sign language, for example. So assuredly that would mean some kind of intelligence on their part. Well, now the problem with certain behavioral scientists, and this would be the response, the problem with certain behavioral scientists, biologists, comparative psychologists, neuroscientists, is that they actually use an equivocation of the word concept, or even symbol, when they use this word as a theoretical construct needed to explain the observed behavior of animals and men. So, in other words, we need to make the distinction between a concept and a perceptual abstraction. We can see that this apparently similar behavior in man and in animals is really explained without reference to some kind of concept formation on part of the non-linguistic animals. So that's just a rather complicated way of saying that the sort of non-verbal factors which are a part of or are operative within the behavior of some non-linguistic animals, dolphins, chimpanzees, bonobos, that they are actually just perceptual residues or memories of certain abstractions which are entirely dependent upon perceptual instincts. So stated in Adler's way, non-linguistic animals are only capable of perceptual abstractions, not concept formation. So another way I think we could think about this is that whenever an individual, let's say a wolf or some other intelligent species like a dolphin, whenever they have a particular experience, this is that's to say not every single dolphin that exists, but let's just talk about some particular dolphin who has an experience, they can individuate their experience and abstract data that way, but they cannot abstract data as an individual. So whereas we human beings can distinguish between non-verbal and verbal information, that sort of distinction doesn't arise within dolphins because they don't have that kind of complexity of propositional or syntactical speech because they can appropriate themselves as an individual. That is to say, the dolphin cannot become subject and object of its own knowledge, whereas human beings can. And so I think from here the nail in the coffin is to suggest that if there really is any theoretical justification for dividing concepts into verbal and nonverbal, it must be derived exclusively from human behavior. Now, I suppose the question probably at this point is why consider all that metaphysical jargon in order to make this kind of point? Well, I think if we're going to get into a philosophy of the self or to understand significantly what it means to say that man is spirit, we have to first cover a science of being which differentiates man from the rest of created being. And the reason why I think that's important is because Clarifying that sort of ontology will steer us away from a kind of a few different pictures of man, which I think are wrong. But first it would take us away from a sort of materialistic picture, which says that we only differ in degree uh, in terms of complexity from that of other animals. So in other words, that really among the sort of biological continuum of the evolutionary process, we just kind of rest on one sort of moment of complexity that's just differentiated among the rest of the created order. And I would say that's fundamentally wrong because there's a, there's a certain feature, a certain power or factor within man's constitution that fundamentally differentiates himself from the rest of the created order. Um, and so when we clarify the metaphysical significance of that differentiation, this kind of opens 
the door, if you will, to conversations about man being spirit. So that is to say, if we take a certain survey of all the things that exist, we talk about vegetative life, such as plants, chemical life, smaller bits, and we work our way up to things more intelligible, uh, you know, again, certain animals, uh, elephants, dolphins, working away up to chimpanzees, bonobos, and finally you have human beings, man at the top. And then I think when we incorporate further the spiritual order and really grasping being in a total kind of way, we then get into, of course, the angels and God. Now, insofar as we're only dealing with this metaphysics of man's being, we've only covered so far created being from man downward. So we're just looking at the material constitution of reality and not so much dealing yet with the spiritual. So why that's also important is that I think if we Christians are going to be in dialogue about the natural world or about discourse as to how man differs, this sort of metaphysics needs to be clarified. Um, and that kind of paves the way for any significant understanding of man being spirit. Um, so again, this takes a lot of analytical work, a lot of metaphysical jargon to work through, but this is the sort of basis that I think we need to establish in order to proceed more specifically um, to any theory of the self or to any theory of the human person. So in other words, I suppose to conclude here that the sort of metaphysics, the sort of distinctions that are covered in this initial introduction is only to lay the ontological groundwork for what constitutes man's being and how it's differentiated from the, re uh, from the rest of the created order. So that way we can sort of work downward kind of at what's phenomenally recognizable in man's material experience and we can kind of edify or work our way upward within man's experience to that of spiritual being um, of course to differentiate between created and uncreated spiritual being angels and god so this series is kind of addressing that question of being in a total aspect but we have to clarify first with what's the case in our experience we have to talk about the certain first principles the groundwork of understanding how it is we know things how we have a certain relation, a metaphysical relation to the rest of the created order and so on and so forth. So this series is essentially going to fill in the details for all the gaps that I've been raising um, in this lecture. And so once we get into more details to a philosophy of being, a philosophy of the human self, we're going to see how the human individual, that is to say you listening, not just to speak merely an abstraction to a general sort of audience, but it's to speak to the concrete individual willing themselves to be before God. That's the ultimate goal, of course, of this uh, lecture series. Of course, for those uh, listening that are non-Christian, I'm sorry to spill the beans ahead of time, but that's essentially the direction that this is going. But in order to do so, we have to establish the rungs of the ladder, if you will, so that climbing upward could be possible. So those are the uh, thoughts that I have on this subject for today's episode. The next one I'm going to get into is going to be the philosophy of Aristotle, um, and we're going to look more into the details of this idea of man differing uh, fundamentally in kind from the rest of the created order. We're going to look at what Aristotle has to say about human flourishing, uh, how individuals can be happy, what it looks like to live uh, as a contemplative in the as a contemplative in the good life, and all those sort of exciting questions. And of course, we'll get into other Socratic philosophers, Plato and then get into Christian theologians after that. So thank you so much. God bless you, and stay tuned for what else, whatever else I have coming, um, whatever else is going on on Facebook, Instagram, and my other podcast, which, of course, you're listening to this one now, but also have unadulterated theology. So be on the lookout for that. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.